All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. 
they, they were more guys who probably weren't going to get claimed. There's a lot of these free agents, Frank, that if Seattle feels they have good conversations with, I could see them doing what Vegas did and claim a free agent like England and then signing them right away. Yeah, I think it depends on the team and exactly what their expansion draft situation is. Like, I'll give you one guy that popped up over the weekend that I did a little digging on, and that would be Ryan Getzlaff from the Anaheim Ducks. Now, my understanding is that Ryan Getzlaff isn't going anywhere. He's very likely to remain a duck next season, I think, on a one-year extension. Um, and I just think at this point, the holdoff is to get through the other side of the expansion draft so that the Ducks don't have to expose any other players, especially some of their young forwards that they have, guys like Sam Steele, et cetera. Uh, I don't know exactly what their list looks like, but the you know if Getzlaff signs now, that's just one more player that they have to expose. So he's in that category, I think, um, that you gave right off the hop, like probably not going anywhere, and so not a lot of real shock. But I think that's, you know, a good example of a guy. Yeah, like Alexander Ovechkin. He ain't leaving Washington, so yeah. why would they Why would they protect him? But there are, like, I know Edmonton would like to get, uh, the, you know, the Larson deal done. And yeah. I don't think they're completely uh, out of the uh, possibilities of Tyson Berry returning either, you know, depending on the right term and the right price. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens uh, this week leading up to it. It'll be exciting. But I, I do think, though, that the expansion draft coming up has probably held up some trades though. Like, you know, we have our yeah. new trade targets list uh, that's now up on dailyfaceoff.com. 25 names deep. We've got six new names on there, including uh, Vladimir Tarasenko, Riley Smith from the Vegas golden Knights. Um, you know, Duncan Keith checks in on the list in the top 10, but like, I think Keith is another good example. Like, so, you know, depending on what you're giving up, you're probably willing to do it, but that's just one more player that you need to protect if you make a move prior to the expansion draft. So those are all things to consider. Like there's a, whatever transaction happens, there's this cumulative uh, trickle down effect that happens throughout the league on all these different boards, you know, where teams are changing formats, whether it's going from eight skaters and one goalie to seven, three, and one, there's a lot of, you know, math that goes into sorting all this out with each transaction that happens. So uh, that's something like on these big boards in these front offices that's ongoing throughout the week. Well, it's, you know, there are some teams that I think if they can sign a guy and, and they feel it's, it's not going to risk them exposing anyone else. So be it. And the other thing is having some conversations with people like a team like Carolina right now, it looks like Brady Shea and Jake Bean could both be exposed and you could say, well, they could trade one, but if they trade one, unless it's a really good trade that otherwise now what happens is you risk losing both because you lose one in the trade and then you lose the other one to, to Seattle. It only really comes down to a team. If they've got one guy, they really like who's going to be potentially exposed. If, if there's a team that, that has lots of room, like Edmonton could add a forward at this point in a trade and, and not really worry about it. And there's obviously other teams that could do, could do similar. So I just, I think there's gamesmanship and also Frank, the GM meetings going on today. Virtual. And, uh, lots of things on the docket, the CHL agreement. And, and I know that this was discussed in March of 2020. 
and it was hotly contested. And, and the main point of conversation is allowing 19 year olds to play in the American League. Now, I'm a bit at a big advocate. I've seen a lots of good 20 year olds go to the American League and just get their teeth knocked in at 20. And they were the never the same player because they lose their confidence to do it at 19. Like to me, unless unless you have three years of CHL, like you played as a 16, a 17 and an 18 year old, and you're a first round pick. That would be my only way, like those might be the loopholes. So then if you look at it, like on an average year in the NHL draft, you're talking, you know, 15 to, to 20 CHL players that are drafted. Cause obviously there's lots in NCAA and then there's lots in Europe. So you would have those players. So that's it, right? And then you spread that across the whole country. Cause otherwise you're, you're gonna start really hurting these teams and sending 19 year olds to the American league. And we've seen tons of European 19 year olds go to the mm -hmm. American league, Frank, and not have a lot of success. So I would prefer they didn't do any, but if they did it, that would be my only loophole is to allow those type of players who played three full seasons before they were 19 and be a first round pick. I think it's interesting that you use the term hotly contested. Um, because I, th I think we're talking about such a small collection of players that I think sometimes people get a little carried away. Like at the most, we're talking about anywhere from like seven to 12 or 15 players at the very most a year. So it's not a large group of players, but I think there's a creative way. And I've written pretty extensively about this, you know, knowing that the CHL agreement that was extended from last year was just a one-year deal that would, um, you know, make this, up, put this up for debate again this year. And I, I think the big thing moving forward is like, doesn't need to be an all or nothing situation. I mean, you mentioned one creative way to do it, uh, you know, must have a certain number of years or seasons accumulated in major junior plus be a first round pick. You know, some are saying it could be one player that you designate per organization, you know, that, you know, maybe it's not a first round pick. And I think the interesting thing to keep in mind is that this was a, a fascinating case study this year, allowing those players since major junior in most parts, you know, certainly the OHL never got underway. Um, the Western league didn't start till very late. So there was lots of players that were in that age range that ended up playing AHL hockey this year. And while a lot of them had success, you know, you think of the Jamie Drysdale's, the Quinton Byfields, uh, those types of players. The other caveat to keep in mind with that is that, the AHL wasn't the normal AHL no. this year because all of the great, not great, but the veteran tougher players to play against were all on taxi squads, the five member taxi squads in the NHL and didn't play in the AHL at all. So, you know, that's sort of the push and pull that exists. But at the same time, you know, the thing is like, you know, let's say Quinton Byfield, for example, I don't know if he meets the age criteria, but I'm just going to use him as an example. He plays the season in the AHL. Now we enter a new CHL agreement next year. And let's say there isn't a provision for a guy like Quinton Byfield. How do you then send a player who now played a full year of pro hockey back to major junior? So I think these are all difficult conversations to have. I think everyone, all of the stakeholders involved, have so much respect for major junior and what it means that they want to be sure to not trample on it. But at the same time, I think a lot of these GMs are looking at it like, look, this is a results oriented business. It's about putting our best organization on the ice and what's best for our players, not so much protecting major junior. So like I said, there's a push and pull here 
um, that I think Major Junior even understands maybe a losing battle to fight to try and keep all those players in the league that they have in the past. True to a point, but I think the NHL has to understand, like still the majority of their players come from that league and they're not paying anything to develop those players, right? Like they pay them after the fact. But uh, with well, no, that's the- that's actually not accurate because the NHL pays the the CHL thirteen to fifteen million dollars a year to do it. Yeah, um, but out of sixty teams, Frank, like, like that's sixty teams. That's not a lot of money per team when you think about it. No, but I'm saying like from the NHL teams, it's a lot of money that they're paying to develop those players. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't I I think it's a pretty good deal that they've got going right now. And to like the the funny thing is about this whole it, it's I think one of the biggest misnomers about the NHL is that youth is better, right? It's a salary cap era. How, how many youngsters were on Tampa Bay's uh winning teams? How many guys had were even in their first or second years when they won the cup? None. Right, like main players, right? Cernak and Sergachev. Ross Colton was a was a rookie this year that scored the cup final. Yeah, how many years goal. a pro? Yeah, okay, he scores one goal, Frank. Right. He's a fourth line player. No, no, no I, I'm, I'm saying like there's not many, but yeah, I, I don't know if the Lightning are the best example because they're not usually like almost okay, every really almost every really good team that's at the top of the salary cap has some contributor that's on an entry-level contract. That's yeah. That's why. Yeah. But maybe the last year of his entry-level deal. Right. So it's still not a, not a rushing to, to the league thing. Like you look at the last, like the NHL draft should really be a 19 year old draft. And then if they did that, then well, you could have players. That would, pardon. That's a whole different conversation though. Well, no, but I think it ties in uh, to it either way because Right now, you know, having players drafted at at, uh, at 18, right? There's the odd one, the late birthday at 19. I just, the NHL, we see more and more players who get rushed to the league, who lose their confidence, and it never comes back to the level that you expected them to be. Because if you're a scorer your whole life, and suddenly now you're not scoring, and now you're in a man's league, because you're right, Frank, this year's AHL. I talked to a lot of coaches who've coached in that league for a long time, and they said, hey, the league was significantly different. Right now we, we can debate different if different is better or not, but it was significantly different and young players, you, you, it was hard to get a gauge on it because some teams had four or five guys who would have been AHL top line players sitting in the, uh, in the taxi squad every night. So now you're, you're against easier competition. Mm-hmm. How, how accurate of a reflection was it? Because unless they're going to sign another two year deal and try it, Right. What, what, what happens is all of a sudden they realize two years down the road, geez, we've sent a lot of 19 year olds to the AHL and it hasn't panned out. And that's a big risk for teams because most of those players are going to be considered the top prospects in every organization. I think those are all fair points. Um, you know, I, and one of the guys we actually end up talking with our guest, Kevin Allen, uh, in this episode about is Michael Rasmussen from, Uh, the Detroit Red Wings, like he's a guy that was put into the AHL at, you know, at a pretty early age, he started out actually in the NHL and then had to go back to um, the AHL. And and I think, you know, I've actually talked to Ken Holland about this, the idea of, you know, you take this guy that's done almost everything that he can accomplish in the WHL. And then what's the sense in sending him back to to the to the whl he's too big too strong too good 
he's going to toy with the competition and there's no, you know, uh, there's something to be said for confidence, but moving forward, is he really progressing? And so do you want to challenge the player and get him to the NHL and, and begin that right away? Like those are the questions that I think every team, you know, struggles with the answer to. Yeah, no, and I'm sure that'll be the, the heavy debate today amongst uh, the 32 now GMs on uh, on what their plan is moving forward for the CHL. Um, other than that, uh, I I haven't heard anything that's that's going to be you know necessarily game changing or anything like that. Uh, I know that uh, you know Tampa Bay wearing the T-shirts, <laughs> Kucherov and the you know 18 mil over the salary cap. Like I'm I'm sure that will be discussed, Frank. But ultimately. I don't believe it can be changed mainly because it's got to be ratified with the players association and the players are going to be like, first of all, this is a shortened season. Um, in, in a normal year, if a player has surgery in September, uh, most of those surgeries you can recover from and be ready to play before uh, the beginning of April, uh, maybe even March. So you'll play anyway. And there were, that meant there was $18 million more for the players association to be spent this year. I just, I, I don't see any motivation for the PA to want to change this rule. It, it also, by the way, if you're doing the math that way, and this is a nerdy point to make, is it increased the amount that the players have to pay back to owners in the escrow formula. So uh, <laughs> I get what you're saying, but yes, it, you basically you're robbing Peter to pay Paul in the long run. Um, but, you know, just a quick point on the t-shirts, like, I, I get the celebration aspect. I get, you know, Nikita Kucherov, like, look, I, we mentioned last pod, no issue with his press conference, love the entertainment value, the honesty, um, the liquid courage, all those things. But I think the t-shirt takes it a step too far. And like, look, I've been, I've made my point pretty clearly about the lightning and their cap situation. I, your point is well made about, this is a one-off year shortened season and also the, the last season ending so late in the bubble that it created a unique environment, but to then flaunt it and have your agent tweeting about your 18 million over the cap shirt. I think it kind of makes a mockery of the situation. Like the agent tweeting, it could very well have been one of the architects or orchestrators of this cap scenario and then to make a shirt and, and, and have everyone wear it and flaunt it. I just think it's not a good look for the rest of the league, which it's obviously a pretty sore subject among other managers with the way that it played out. Yeah, I can see that. I can also see the other side and a, a little bit of controversy sells, right? The NHL doesn't have tons of personality to begin with at times. And so the heel wrestling has, the heel has become yeah, quite a heel a turn for future off. Yeah. Right. The, and, and if you're Tampa Bay, you're back-to-back champions. Their fans love it. And if the opposing fans hate you anymore, like there's something to be said about the, you know, the heel or, or people just wanting to see you fail. So they follow it. And that might why not, not be like, good. Well, why not just keep the, like for Kucherov, he had another shirt that said number one bullshit. Like, yeah. just like, how about just that shirt? Like, do you well, like multiple Frank, you're going to sell them all. Like I bet you those t-shirts are, sell, you know, this, this is, come point. on, this is marketing and this is business. And you know, this is Bud Light. Uh, who, by the way, you on Instagram, you would have thought that his agent actually won the Stanley cup, but that's <laughs> for later. Uh, uh, see, I, I like a little uh, color in, in what is, is sometimes can be a, 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 a very prim and proper bland league. So I, I don't mind it at all. I, uh, I understand 
uh, the frustration from, from other people on this scenario. It seems like it's a one-off, but if you look by the rules of the law, they didn't, they did not, it's, it's not it, necessarily. Right. I've never argued that yeah. it's, it's a rules violation. My argument the entire time was it was an, a violation of the spirit of the CBA. That's all yeah. I've ever said. And yeah, I, okay. I, and that's her. This one, so this one's more, you, you don't like the basically rubbing it in the people's faces that they did it. Well, yeah, look, to, to have it happen, fine, to wear a T-shirt after the fact and, and flaunt that you were a $98 million team in an $81.5 million league, I've said it before. This is the best example I can give when people say, how big of an advantage is it? You had a Connor McDavid and Ryan Nugent Hopkins on the cap extra that no other team had. Ah, well, hey, w welcome back to the, uh, to the mid-90s, early 2000s, Frank. When uh, Detroit uh, and uh, and no, world. but it's true, right? Like those, yeah. no, it's just it's it's a reminder that of course there there can be a significant advantage. Now the New York Rangers were the exception back in the '90s and the 2000s. They spent galore and could never win. But Dallas, New Jersey, Detroit, Colorado. It's not a surprise really? that those teams. I mean, the Flyers won. were spending set the Flyers cap in 2003-4. Like their internal spending was 74 million dollars. We yeah. are. 17 years later and they're still barely just above that at 81.5 yeah wow amazing yeah so that you wonder how much more money they're making considering oh, they must be making some at that point then. so that's good now hey frank uh, coming up at uh, dailyfaceoff.com today you have uh the recent trade targets and uh of course uh, tarasenko is is right in and you broke that story way back in the, in the end of june in, in your article there but you look at all those names, Frank, and I know you've been doing these lists for many years. I, now, maybe my memory is just off because it's everything is fresh. I don't recall this man like Jack Eichel, Kuznetsov, Seth Jones, Tarasenko, like legit, really good players, all openly available. I've said it all along that this is the juiciest offseason in hockey history. And people think that I'm some sort of like hype man. You've got the trade targets list, which is, it, it's like legit 20 names deep. And then you've got maybe the deepest free agent class ever. And I'm not even including guys like Ovechkin on the list. I didn't have Landis Cog in my original rankings because I didn't think there was a possibility for him to go anywhere. It's, it's very, very talented this year. And the flat cap has a lot to do with that. And so does the, you know, so does the expansion draft. And so I mentioned those two things, free agency and the trade market without even mentioning, you know, the excitement and intrigue of the expansion draft itself. And kind of the crazy part is that we're now sitting here on July 12th and there's, it's been very quiet. We, the buyout window has been open. We haven't had a single buyout to this point. There's been one trade in the month of July and that was Arvidsson going to LA for a couple of picks. Other than that, it's been kind of quiet. So this is all going to come together. Expansion lists are due in six days. The expansion draft is in nine days. Free agency is in 16 days. Like this is all going to come together in really short order. So I guess the risk in putting out a trade target story is that it's dated information in 24 or 48 hours. Yeah, potentially. But, you know, you look at a lot of the names and, you know, you have a guy like Evander Kane, who, who might have been the Sharks' best forward last year, right? Well, he not might. He was the Definitely Sharks' was, best forward. Yeah. Wasn't it was close, a career really. year for him. And, you know, you also have Sam Reinhardt in your top 10. 
And you look at the Buffalo Sabres, man, Jack Eichel and Sam Reinhardt, and you've got a rookie GM. Like Now, hey, um, you know, a lot of people thought Joe Sackick as a rookie GM and look at the great moves he's made over the years. He was ultra patient. What's your sense on the Sabres and, and what they're going to do? Um, because, you know, even Reese Linen's name has, you know, is, uh, is involved there. Like that's three uh, major changes. Trade target list as well. Plus all marks of free agent. Like it, it's amazing what, potential change we could see in Buffalo this off season in the next three weeks. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, look, um, Reinhardt is such a talented player too. Like I've, I actually struggled where to place him on the list. And, you know, I, I mentioned in the story that I think if you were to really ask and dig in on the Sabres and Kevin Adams and ask Don Granato about trading Sam Reinhardt, that, neither one of them would want to like, he'd yes. be one of those perfect guys to build around. But I think the environment has been so negative. there, so difficult. His comments have been so negative, you know, add in the fact that, you know, he's a guy that needs a contract and you're like, okay, like, do we just rip the bandaid off here and, and decide to move on? And I think that's kind of what this off season is for the Sabres is ripping the bandaid off. They've had, you know, so many difficult and lean years that now it's about sorting out which players actually want to be there. And I think, you know, Ristolainen is another guy, you know, change of scenery. Let's move on here. Let's do something different. Jack Eichel has hit the wall. You know, you've got to make changes and start to build around guys that want to be there. And I have, you know, I've yet to really see any indication from any of those three players that they really want to dig in and continue to be there. So I think that's the big thing moving forward with the Sabres. Yeah, they're a fascinating team for me to watch. Uh, Columbus, uh, similar. You, you've got Seth Jones, who's obviously a really good defenseman available. Kuznetsov's a, a unique one for me in Washington because you know when, when we saw the deal they made for Verana and Mantha, you know, with a first and a second, I'm thinking Kuznetsov might be a trade where you know Washington, like they still feel they're in their window to win, right? They're they're going to re-sign Ovechkin, Frank. So, I, do you see any of your top ten moving? for another player in the top 10. Huh. I hadn't really considered that idea. Um, like, and I know those are hard. Like you got to go back to like Danny Heatley, Marion Hosa trades. Like it's rare to see, you know, top end players traded for one another, but with so many available, I wonder if this is a year that, you know, teams just, you know, kind of here, here's one of our really good players. We'll take one of your really good players. You know, it's funny. And, and maybe it's just the fact that I'm looking at two Russians at three and four, like could Tarasenko a go for Kuznetsov. Yeah. Could, could that work? Could that make sense for St. Louis? Like you're taking two extra years of term and, and what you're getting in Washington is two fewer years that makes your cap situation a little bit more manageable. Is Tarasenko really the stylistic player that, the caps need. And also you're trading a center for a winger. Those are always difficult transactions to make. I'm just totally spitballing. Like I wonder if, you know, cap wise, it certainly makes sense. And there's not much of a net change at all there. Um, you know, I, I think that's the only one that, that really might make sense. Yeah. Because in the top you know, 10. Yeah. Like I don't see Buffalo. They would love to take Seth Jones for Eichel, but he's only got a year left in his contract. And because of their situation, it'd be pretty difficult to see him uh, re-signing there. Right. Like the Jack Eichel trade, if they make it is going to be for a lot of younger players 
with term and then draft picks because Buffalo's in a clear rebuild once they deal Eichel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And look, um, maybe another, maybe Pavel Butchnevich is a guy that you could see going as part of a package from New York to Buffalo in an Eichel deal. If that were to happen, um, Butchnevich is really interesting. Like that guy had an unbelievable season, 48 points in 54 games. I mean, he was really, really good. And another guy that has been really consistent. Um, this was a career year for him. It comes out to a 70 point, 72 point season in an 82 game campaign, but he needs to be paid. And so, um, it's interesting. Larry Brooks had, I don't know if you, if you are a big Seinfeld fan or not, but Vandalay Industries, I'm an importer exporter. I guess an awesome reference that he made in his column, but he was saying, if the Rangers want to be better, they're going to need to send guys out and also bring in new guys at the same time. Um, and so I think Buchnevich, a guy needing to be paid, you know, at the very bare minimum, he's looking at 5 million bucks in an arbitration award. Plus that also walks him to free agency. Um, you know, he needs a longer term type deal. And I just don't know if the Rangers are the team to give it to him. So, um, that's why he's on the board. And I know that they've been pursuing and engaged in conversations about potentially moving him. Frank, I consider Seinfeld the greatest sitcom ever made. I would, uh, I w- we could do a whole episode talking about. Some- I love. I that actually show. had the the shirt Vandalay Industries, oh. like with the smokestacks that said "Importer Exporter." <laughs> awesome. Oh man! I just see George wheeling out of the bathroom, tripping with his pants uh, down around his ankles. Oh, such a great show! Uh, absolutely love it. So no, I would. Well, I could keep talking Seinfeld, but let's switch over. And uh, get to our guest today, Kevin Allen, because there's lots going on. The Detroit Red Wings, Steve Iserman, one of the harder nuts to crack as a GM. What moves are they going to make? He had the Verona deal at the trade deadline. He's got Bertuzzi. They got a boatload of picks in the upcoming draft. I expect Detroit to be a big player. Our next guest had one of the best jobs in hockey for 34 years, covering the league as a national reporter for USA Today. He was also the former president of the Professional Hockey Writers Association. Glad to share in that same uh, title and and really learned so much from Kevin throughout the years. And he's now on to his next adventure covering the league for Detroit Hockey Now. Back to his roots as a beat reporter. And the DFO Rundown is pleased to welcome in Kevin Allen. Thanks a lot for joining us. It's a pleasure. Happy to be uh, on the show with you, Frank. Congratulations on your new gig. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So let's start off here. Uh, tell us what you're up to, um, why you decided to, uh, to get back into the rink and, and cover the Detroit Red Wings. Well, I think it's fair to say that I didn't adjust to retirement all that well. Uh, and that uh, during COVID, you know, I really had the itch to be involved and I really felt like, uh, I still had uh, stories to write and more reporting to do. And, you know, I don't want to do it uh, uh, forever. Um, You know, I'm looking forward to retirement. I have a little place on the lake that I get to quite a lot, but I was pretty again. And I was looking for kind of a combination package in order to get it done. And I ended up uh, cutting a deal with hockey buzz to write 20 national columns uh, uh, per month. And then I ended up with a, a uh, even more regular gig with uh, Detroit Hockey now as as a beat writer, and obviously I had been a beat writer, but usually for 31 teams, and now it's for one, so it's a little bit different. So uh, I'm learning how to juggle both of those responsibilities, but 
Um, I, I couldn't give up the national gig. That's why I'm still writing uh, uh, columns for ha- Hockey Buzz. And but I do. So far, I've enjoyed uh, you know paying a lot of attention to one team. Though I, I had to pick the one that has one of the diff- most difficult general managers to uh, to read, and Steve Eisenman, who does a really fine job. But uh, you know he doesn't allow a lot of information uh, to leak out of his uh, his office. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that when you signed on to to cover the Red Wings. I was like, wow, that's that's a tough assignment. Um, like you said, he has the ability to make the job interesting, but doesn't give a lot of info. And and that's actually why we wanted to have you on is to get some insight on the Wings. To me, they're one of the most intriguing teams of the off season in the sense that. In a lot of ways, Steve Eiserman has uh, a clean palette. He can do with whatever this, you know, he wants with this team sort of moving forward salary cap wise. And in addition to that, everyone's kind of wondering when exactly he's going to put his stamp on this team to get them heading in that direction uh, that he certainly achieved with the Tampa Bay Lightning. So what do you foresee as you look into your crystal ball uh, for the offseason for Detroit? Well, I, you know, first of all, I, I think he already has kind of put a stamp on it just with regard to, um, you know, in Detroit where uh, Steve Eisenman can do no wrong. He essentially walks on water. And, uh, you know, I'll give you an example of that. You know, uh, with his coach, Jeff Blaschel, there were a lot of fans that wanted Jeff uh, gone uh, just on the basis of the fact that the team was uh, so horrible and they couldn't uh, move beyond uh, uh, the one loss record. But, Steve Eiserman uh, said, you know, th- there's nothing wrong with the way Jeff Blaschel is coaching. I just haven't uh, created the team good enough to win. And I really like what he's doing. And he's very involved with that. Well, <clears throat> he said all that, rehired him. And then, you know, when you read the comments from the fans, it's like, well, if Steve says he's okay, he must be okay. And, you know, there's no other uh, city right now where I think uh, that would have worked, but it does work in Detroit because they have so much trust. But uh, Eiserman has done things like, uh, uh, Moritz Sider was not ranked where he drafted him at number six. He was lower than that. And now Sider is considered to be the best prospect, uh, currently not in the NHL. The Verona trade um, where he got rid of a very inconsistent score and brought in another guy who's a little bit younger, who scores at the same level, and then added a first and second round pick. Well, that really played well uh, in Detroit. So, and then the, the, the picking last season of Lucas Raymond, who at the start of the year was considered to be a possibility to go number one overall, but sort of fell to Detroit at four. And I think fans are excited about that as well. He's made a couple other small trades that have worked out for him. The Adam Ernie trade looks pretty good right now. Ernie all of a sudden looks like a player, um, you know, uh, Fabre from St. Louis has stepped in and played on the second line for him. So, I think people feel like he's really already made an impact. However, this season he's got, when I think when he's done signing his restricted free agents, he'll have $27 million in cap space. I think we'll see him use some of that, but not all of it, because I don't think he feels it would be worthwhile because that was the case last season to go out and try to bid on a uh, older. And I, when I say older, I mean, older by rebuild, um, standards. In other words, he's not looking for a 29 or a 30 year old. He's looking for guys that are younger than that. So I don't think he'll, he'll try to, uh, uh, get a, you know, one of the big time free agents, but he, you know, he could use it to take a bad contract. Um, certainly if, uh, somebody was, uh, in cap hell, like his former team, uh, the Tampa Bay lightning, he could uh, perhaps uh, make a deal then he's looking to try to acquire 
uh, younger uh, either draft picks or, or prospects. Kevin, when you look at, you know, mentioned uh, younger picks or prospect, there, this and Frank just had it up at uh, dailyfaceoff.com, the, uh, you know, the, the trade opportunities. And there's some really good play. I can't remember the last time we had this many elite players up for grabs. You've got Jack Eichel. You have Seth Jones on the blue line. You have Vladimir Tarasenko now. You've got Kuznetsov. Detroit has 11 picks in the first five rounds this year. They've got a boatload of picks. They've got lots of young prospects. Do you see Iserman maybe jumping in more in the trade market where you're going to get, as, as you mentioned, you know, a younger player who's under contract, but also, you know, you don't have to overpay in term. These guys are already signed. So you know what their contract is. Does that seem like a more realistic path for you? Well, realistic, but not for the players you mentioned. Like I do think he's looking at uh, trades, but again, he's looking younger. And uh, I know you're going to say Eichel is in the rebuild age bracket, but Eichel would cost him too much if we are to believe that they're looking for four assets with um, uh, first round equivalency. Um, he's not going to give that up. You know, he's not going to, he, I think he, he would view that as uh, setting back uh, the rebuild to get one player back for four uh, players that, uh, you know, he values as, as part of the rebuild. So I don't see him in on Eichel. Um, same thing with uh, Tarasenko. Um, and, uh, but I do think, you know, he's poking around at, at like McDermott in Toronto and other, where there's younger, younger players who, for whatever reason, um, teams need to get rid of either for uh, uh, expansion draft reasons or for, uh, um, uh, you know, cap reasons or whatever. Like, for example, if, um, you know, right now it appears, uh, although I don't, I think they've probably got it figured out already, uh, Eric Cernak would be vulnerable to go in the expansion draft. If that were the case, I'm sure Steve Eisenman would be all over that in terms of a trade to get a younger defenseman that would fit into his. So I think he is being very aggressive because that's his nature. Uh, so I think he's looking at all the younger guys who fit the category you just described uh, for whatever reason, the, the teams uh, need to, to move them. But I would be shocked if he went after any of the older players. Okay. Now I look at the Detroit and their protection list list seems pretty straightforward up front, but it also illustrates the need to improve their blue line. You mentioned young, um, uh, you know, you've got some young defensemen in the organization, but very rarely, if you want to be competitive, are you winning with a ton of youth on your back end? So where do you see guys that they can help on the back end? Cause you know, you've got large, you know, they just, acquired Verana and you've got Larkin, you know, Rasmussen, I still think they're pretty high on. Obviously you've got um, Bertuzzi, et cetera, but is the back end the obvious void? And if so, how can he fix it this off? Well, I think he's going to do exactly what he did last season, which is, uh, you know, he's going to add stopgap players. Uh, that's the only area where I could see him, uh, you know, taking older players, but they won't be, uh, you know, long-term guys or guys that he sees as part of the, permanent fix. Now he is uh, on record as basically saying that it's going to be three more years before this team is uh, ready to go. Like they had a chance last year, Tory Krug was a Michigan native. The, the word on the street was he would be willing to come back to Detroit, but Eisenman didn't go after him. And the reason he didn't is because he felt like by the time this team was going to be able to compete, Krug would be uh, 30 years old. And he just didn't feel like that was a good fit. So I think this, the, you'll see them. If you remember last year, they went after a guy like John Merrill, uh, then ended up trading him. They went after Stahl. 
Uh, I think there's a chance Stahl will come back. They loved him. Uh, he's an older player, but he was very good with the younger players. He competed hard every night. Like that's the thing that struck uh, uh, Detroit fans is how hard he competed. So I think there's a chance they would bring him back as as, as a, a guy to be a mentor and to be you know pretty stable influence uh, as well. And then I think they'll look around and try to pick up. Uh, I would think uh, that Mike Riley is a guy they're going to be interested in. I'll think they'll poke after Ryan Murray. These are defensemen that are in the 27-age uh, uh, bracket, uh, and they'll see what the, their cost is going to be. But uh, there's no doubt they're going to add at least two and perhaps three, depending on who they lose in the expansion draft defensemen. So, Kevin, Tyler Bertuzzi was a name that just popped up in conversation, and he's actually on our daily face-off trade targets list. And I find that really interesting for a number of reasons. You know, I guess part of its age, you have to pay him. You mentioned some other guys that are in that 27 age range that, you know, at a certain point with a three-year window still to go in a rebuild, does it really make sense to pay a guy like Bertuzzi? My question for you as he's on, you know, seemingly the trade block is how – concerning is the back injury with him what's the latest in terms of his recovery it seems like he's going to be at full strength for training camp in september but it, that seems to be an injury that has teams concern given his style of play yeah and uh you know and i think as you said it's just not so much that the reports have been bad but just the idea that back injuries for guys who play like he does and bang around a little bit in front of the net um is is, is one that uh, you know causes concern uh, I think the Red Wings uh, certainly didn't start out to the, the summer thinking they were going to trade Tyler Bertuzzi, but it, there are, there has been interest in him. And the only kind of trade that I can see Eisman making with Bertuzzi, and I, I wouldn't rule it out because um, Eisman will do anything that gets him uh, in his mind uh, to be a better team in three years. So if you could offer him a package that would do that, like if you could give him prospects uh, that you that he thinks could be ready in you know the two to three year range, um, you know he might he might do that because you know he's going to get a little younger, which is fine with him. Um, and also you know if he could get multiple guys instead of just one, uh, they would do that. But it's gonna it's you know he's not going to trade them for draft picks. Like I see a lot of stuff out there about social media about well we'll offer him a first round pick. That's not going to do it because yeah. you know he's going to use those picks. Uh, to try to find a guy like Bertuzzi when he already has him, and Bertuzzi's not old. Obviously, um, you know he still fits in the rebuild, uh, uh, you know, age bracket. So uh, they're not in any hurry to trade him, but I think they would do it if it was the right, uh, you know, package. Uh, to be sure. What are the Red Wings going to do in goal? I, obviously, they have Thomas Grice signed for next year, one year left on his deal. He's thirty-five. What's in the pipeline? And that's always such a big question mark when you're looking at a rebuild. Do they have the goalie to build around? No, they don't. Uh, and uh, uh, it's worrisome, I think, for the organization. They're looking around. Um, the, the fan base, I think, would like them to take Jesper Wallstedt, uh, who is the Swedish uh, 18-year-old uh, who jumped in and played in the, the senior men's league there in Sweden. has been very impressive. A couple of scouts I've talked to have uh, compared him um, to Spencer Knight or Eskaroff, the Predators' uh, fine prospect. Um, and I I'm not sure what the Red Wings are going to do there because Eisman is such a hard read. And that first pick, um, he, he always talks about he leaves it to his scouts, and I think that's true. I think he trusts the guys he has there. 
But I think Steve owns that first pick, and I think that will be his call on whether, uh, you know, they take a Wallstead at number six. Um, you know, it's uh, this is a COVID draft, which means they're less uh, teams are less sure about their uh, rankings than they usually are. So maybe this is the time to take a goalie where, uh, you know, because it's always sort of felt that it's harder to project a goalie, but it's hard to project a lot of these guys in this because you haven't seen them as much as you had before. So I, I think there's discussion of that. Yeah, beyond that, um, they will go out and get a uh, veteran goalie in play now. I think they're for sure going to take multiple goalies in this draft. I don't know what rounds it'll do it, um, but I think uh, they feel like they've got to get to – two or three and they've got to find one. And if they don't get one an elite one, this draft, they're for sure going to get one next time. They really need to do that. Cause they really, when I mean, they have nothing coming. They literally have nothing coming. How come they didn't trade Jonathan Bernier at the draft? I mean, sorry, at the trade deadline. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, uh, first of all, I think there's a chance he'll come back. He could be the better goalie, but I don't think I, I, you know, either they didn't get to what they wanted. The team, uh, he, he played, has, has played well for the Red Wings. Yes. And, uh, you know, what that told me is one of two things. Even the offer, either the offers weren't strong enough, like they were getting fourth and fifth round uh, picks, which, you know, I, I you know, I, Eisenman may have felt that we might as well, you know, try to be more competitive. Because I think in that first year, they were so bad that Eisenman said to himself, you know, I can't allow these younger players to be, uh, have to go through this again the second year. So he made it a point to make the team more competitive, and he did that. Those veteran defensemen uh, made that team. That, that games were always close. They were in games. Um, they felt like there was some progress because they were seeing that. So uh, I think maybe that was it, that uh, he didn't get offers that were strong enough to warrant you know, just throwing them out. So he felt I might as well keep them and stay uh, you know, fairly competitive. Kevin, when you look – you know, it's, it's Steve Eiserman. His fingerprints are definitely uh, heavily involved in the in the back-to-back championships for the Tampa Bay Lightning. There's no question. And, and, you know, and they built through the draft. They also built with some really good, like Kucherov in the second round and Point in the third round and, you know, Palat in the seventh round. Uh, you know, Kalorn was later picked, but uh, Eiserman wasn't there when, when he was picked. How do you evaluate kind of the scouting staff because, you know, I'm not sure it's always on the GM. Actually, I'm, I'm pretty confident it's not always on the GM. He doesn't see a lot of these players. The the amateur draft, and if you want to be a good team, ultimately, you're going to have to rebuild through the draft. So wh- where do you rank the amateur scouting of the Red Wings right now? Well, I, I think it's better than it was uh, um, because it's new and it's hungry and it's aggressive. Um, I, I think, um, uh, you know, it had gotten stale under Ken Holland and uh, – um, you know, I, I suppose he bears responsibility for it, but I, I'm a little kinder to uh, Holland than uh, the fan base simply because I think, uh, you know, he did a lot of good work for the organization for a lot of years. And at the end, um, you know, he wasn't used to uh, having a, a team that was on a decline. And I think he struggled to figure out um, how to correct that. Um, but I, you know, I don't think you should erase all that he did, but I don't think there's any question. They didn't draft well. Um, like even, uh, uh, you know, Rasmussen, who you, who said that, um, you know, they, they still like him. Yeah, they do like him because he works hard, but you know, he's going to be a third line guy and, you know, uh, where he was picked at 
the thought was, well, shouldn't we have found a first line guy or at least a guy that can play in the top six? So that's sort of the, um, you know, where that the, the Holland drafts were at. Since Eisman took over, he's brought in a lot of guys and he's given them the mandate is we got to find real players and err on the side of the skill package. Uh, we want guys who can uh, be dynamic that maybe, hey, we'll miss on some, but we need to find some home runs. We need to find some Kucheras. We need to find some guys. So they've done that. Um, uh, if you look at their picks, they've uh, done some things like the New Jersey Devils back in the early 90s were known for uh, guys that maybe at the start of the year um, looked like they were going to be higher and then faded for whatever reason. Uh, the Red Wings are, uh, have looked hard at those guys. They've looked at guys who have great skill packages but hadn't produced. Uh, a good example of that is Wallander, the Swedish defenseman, who you know has is big and skilled and everything, and just didn't do anything his draft year. But they took him uh, with the first pick in the second round, and now you know he's going to be on the junior team, and he has kind of come along. So I I, I think this uh, uh, amateur scouting that they have led by now Chris Draper, who Eisman knows well for having played with him. And, you know, he really uh, uh, strong-armed uh, Draper saying, you know, I, you know, I really need you to be good at that. So tell me you can be good at it and, uh, you know, we'll be fine. And uh, I think Draper said, yeah, I'll do the job for you. And uh, Kevin, it's funny, uh, going back to Rasmussen, I watched him a ton in, in the Western. He was dominant in his draft. I understood why they took him high. And, like, part of me wonders if he's just a big body that, you know, I didn't love the decision to to put him in the AHL at the time that they did. I'm, I'm not a big believer in that overall. I'd rather have kids dominate and maintain their confidence. So I don't know if that stifled his development or not. But you mentioned third line player now. What is it about Rasmussen's game that just hasn't translated? Because he had everything. He could score. He could skate a big body. And we just haven't seen that at the pro level. Yeah, it, it really hasn't. He hasn't been able to uh, make it uh, all come together. Um, uh, you know, he's uh, his straight line speed was fine early, but he had trouble getting going. Um, I think he's worked on that. I, 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 I've been told that Eisenman really does like his work ethic. Um, and I, I think when they took him, they hoped he might be a Jordan Stahl type, a guy that could slide up and down the lines. Um, and you know, maybe he will still be that, but right now he hasn't shown that, but right now they have him penciled in, uh, as a number three center and he has worked at all the things they wanted to be more aggressive. I thought he was more aggressive last season. He has worked certainly on his skating because, you know, there's difference between a good, being a good skater. And as you know, in the CHL and a good skater at the NHL level. So he's worked at that. Um, but they haven't given up on him. Uh, that's for sure. But, um, I, th I think, uh, they, they're, they're starting to uh, project that he's not going to get any higher than where he is now. He, he will play on a power play, though. They do like him in front of the net. Interesting. Yeah, Kevin, really appreciate your insight on the Red Wings. I wanted to see if you could regale us with a tale or two from your time covering the NHL at USA Today. If you're listening and you're under 25, to understand the platform that Kevin had uh, writing in the paper that was delivered to the doorstep of almost every hotel around the league every morning, uh, unprecedented, unmatched circulation across the country. What was it like covering the league for 34 years at USA Today? Well, I mean, you just uh, encircled really the, the fun for me was, you know, when I first started out, you know, you need to establish yourself. But, uh, you know, my had uh, built-in establishment because, as you said, 
uh, you know, would go and be under the doors and all the hockey players would, would read it. And, you know, so many times I'd go and introduce myself and the guy would say, oh, I know who you are. I read you every day. Um, and we were the paper of record. Um, NHL wasn't uh, covered all that well by all the papers. So um, there was a running joke that it really didn't happen until it was in USA Today in the early years. This is in the 80s. Um, and uh, even internationally, I, I, w I went to Japan to cover a, a game when the Vancouver Canucks uh, went over there and a security guy called me in the press box and said, there's people that want to see you. And I said, oh, okay. And I just thought maybe it was somebody that knew me from uh, the past. And I went down and there was a line of about eight or 10 Japanese people who had my books and uh, all knew me from reading USA Today. And the same was true. And when I met Russian people, they all knew me because the only information you could get in Europe was often from the USA Today. So it made my life fun. But uh, uh, just because uh, I had such a large uh, platform, I remember uh, uh, Jacques Demers was a little disappointed in the, the local coverage of the Canadians, and he banned all newspapers in the dressing room except for USA Today, um, which uh, made me then, of course, uh, the subject of uh, uh, the uh, reporters in Montreal I would call to get me get my reaction uh, for that. So it was a lot of fun times in those uh, early years. And then, you know, everything changed, when, I think, when the Internet came along. And, uh, you know, I say all the time, Everybody who covers the league now is a national reporter because, as you know, once on social media, it's everything's on social media. So it, it changed, but uh, I enjoyed every uh, uh, minute uh, at USA Today, and uh, I was proud of my career. I was proud to work for USA Today, and uh, I wouldn't trade any of it. So last one for me, Kevin, and then uh, I don't know if Jason has any more. We could play some rapid fire. Uh, if you had a word of advice for someone starting out in this industry, I looked up to you for a long, long time and still rely on you for advice and counsel. What would it be to someone starting out in the industry? Um, it, right, right all the time. I, you know, I recently talked to someone who was wanted a career in our business and he was a senior in college. And I asked him how much writing he has had done that had been online or published. And he said, well, none. I said, well, you're, you're way behind. You know, by the time I had graduated from college, I had written a thousand stories, literally a thousand stories. You know, I had internships. I had worked for my college paper. I was freelancing every chance I get. That's still the most important thing. Uh, you know, you, you need to get out there. You need to write. You need to have a feel for the story. You need to understand that writing has pace. Uh, you need to, uh, you know, get a sense for what your style is, what you're going to do. You need to understand. You need to report. So you can understand and develop your own ethics of how it's all going to work. Uh, it's a complicated business now. There's no doubt more complicated than when I started. Um, and it, in order to uh, kind of sift through those complications, you got to do it. You got to do it early and you got to learn by it. You're going to make mistakes. So you got to get out and you just got to find it. And you can take no for an answer. You can't take no for an answer. You've got to be able to get early in your life to, to be able to be published. All right, Kevin, we like to end every interview playing rapid fire. Uh, some fun, Great. different questions. Uh, the only rule is you have to answer the question. All right, I will. So, uh, he will start. Kevin, you had one of the biggest breaking stories ever with uh, Meryl Mew returning to Pittsburgh. How did you get that story? Um, well, uh, it, well, it's kind of complicated without revealing my source, but I'll tell you what I can. Uh, we had a tip. And I checked on uh, with a couple of uh, places uh, um, and mostly it was done with league sources and not local sources. And then once I had the 
uh, league sources figured out. In other words, people in the national scale that had an inkling this was going on. I went to local and uh, got it that way. And I will say that what I remember the most about it is um, Mary Lemieux was told that I had it and that it was coming out. And he said, give him 30 minutes, which I, you know, and that was very big. That thing. They didn't confirm it until 30 minutes after I broke it. Oh, that's pretty good. Nice. Yeah, so he wanted, cool. wanted you to have the 30 minutes of, uh, of he did. He did. Pretty nice. Yeah, Obviously you had, uh, you had earned a, a pretty good reputation for him. I, well, I, I knew Mario actually pretty well back then. So. Okay. Um, you, you were the beat reporter for the Detroit Red Wings first for, uh, for many years. So tell me this. Who, who was a tougher fighter, Koser or Probert? Oh, um, I, I got to qualify that. I think uh, Probert was the scariest fighter. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, Probert was the most effective fighter and the most well-known, but uh, Koster was more enthusiastic about it. Uh, you know, Probert needed to take a few punches to get into it. He was actually a reluctant fighter. He was a, a teddy bear, really. Koster liked it, and uh, he was uh, dangerous, uh, people knew he was dangerous. He could hurt you. Um, so they were a little, a little scared of him, but, uh, but Probert was such a heavyweight that, you know, once you got into a fight with him and he was into it, you, you were in serious trouble. So Kev, if you're barbecuing, what's on the grill? Um, pork chops. I like uh, pork chops and lamb shanks. And what do you, what's your spice of choice on those? Uh, uh well i got several uh we would use uh probably mostly number one would be garlic we uh, put a lot of garlic on our food okay and uh do you have a beverage of choice that you go with your uh pork chops or lamb um yeah mostly it would be a beer to be be sure and i'm a real traditionalist when it comes to beer uh i'm a bud bud like guy mostly um oh. but i you know i will uh uh, you know, drink uh, Bud regular as well, but uh, I, I'm an American beer drinker, and my wife is, uh, you know, likes the ambers and uh, everything else, uh, IPAs. Uh, but I'm more of a traditionalist. Okay, so you're the Nik you're the Nikita Kucherov of your household right now, big Bud. Yeah, I, I was I was quite amused by that, and I really did enjoy that. I was I was disappointed that uh, he took some uh, heat on that because as a reporter, the, the, yeah. that's the personalities we want. You know, you see that so often in the NBA. And, you know, when I was at USA Today near the end of my career when we were really watching the numbers, you know, hockey just can't get anywhere near the NBA because of their personalities. Yes. And, uh, you know, in terms of our readership. And if we had more guys like Kucherov, we would. We would do better. There's no, no doubt about it. Yeah, you just got to have beers before every press conference, clearly. Well, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that's true. That, that was probably beer-inspired, there's no doubt. So, Kev, you're, you're a national guy. You're, you know, beat reporter. You're, you're back doing both again. Over the years, who was the, who was the, the GM that you kind of felt you worked with the best? Who, like, the best quote? Who, who was the one that just gave you the best? Yeah, uh, it's easy. It was, it was Brian Burke. Uh, there's, there's no doubt. Um, you know, I knew him as an agent. He was one of the first people I met at USA Today. So I had a great relationship with him. Um, and I loved calling to talk to him and, you know, he always had, uh, you know, good information, uh, very colorful quotes, but one thing I'd say about him that you know, a lot of people think that, uh, you know, Brian comes up with uh, all of his stuff spontaneously. 
um, and the ad libs. And, you know, he's, he's probably pretty good at it, but he thinks about everything he says. And remember every time you read something from him is that he has already thought it through um, and he's saying it for a reason. He's, there's always a message or a method to what he has to say. He never, even though it feels like he's flying off the handle, he's never flying off the handle. And then on the other end, who was the toughest nut to crack as a GM to get information? Well, it, it's, and it's one of my favorite GMs. It's, it's David Poyle. I say all the time, um, and I've known David for 40 years, and uh, he's very cooperative with me. He's a real good quote for a national guy because he's always insightful, but he never gives me any scoops. You know, he, that's just not his nature. He's a very private person. And so the next scoop I get will be the first that I get from him, and I've known him 40 years. Now, he'll talk to me and give me, give me great quotes and explain things, but he's not going to tell me inside information about his team. He just doesn't do that. And, and lastly, if the Red Wings are making a splash here in the next few weeks, will it be a free agent or a trade? It'll be a trade uh, to be sure. And, uh, you know, if it is, maybe it will be a guy like Tyler Bertuzzi because I think he'll fetch a lot. Um, you know, Bertuzzi uh, is the kind of player that you look for for the postseason. And the Red Wings aren't going to the postseason for a while. Um, so, you know, he, he actually might be better off, uh, uh, to go elsewhere. I mean, can you you know, imagine, but you know, Boston, uh, with, uh, Bertuzzi or, or any of the contending teams, like he was born to play, uh, playoff hockey and he, it's a, a pity that he's not going to be there. So, and I think he could get a lot for him. Um, like, you know, with Toronto, um, you know, he would, they would it escalate into a multiplayer trade. Um, I, th I think it could. Kevin, great stuff, man. I've, I've appreciated reading your stuff and talking to you over the years. Thanks for joining us on the Daily Faceoff Rundown. That was a lot of fun, guys. I appreciate it. Right, Kevin Allen, what a great career. 34 years, USA Today. And uh, prior to that, I think he's written like 13 or 14 books. He was with JR. He wrote one, of course, on Chelios and Brett Hall and many others. So uh, he was, he was well-respected and still is well-respected uh, many years in the uh, in the media world as, as a great journalist and uh, what he's doing in Detroit right now is pretty awesome and uh, I'm kind of intrigued by the Red Wings Frank I think I think the Red Wings are going to be the quiet surprise team and I I know that he feels uh, he being uh, Steve Eisenman that they're a few years away and I can respect that but at the same time there might not be a summer where you have this many big name players available I I won't be shocked if Steve Eisenman jumps into that fray and acquires one of those players yeah, I think the problem is he's juggling, though, jumping in to, you know, to make sure you nab a couple of those players, but at the same time recognizing that the rest of the operation may not be up to speed or able to catch up yet. I mean, we asked Kevin about the goaltending. That needs a lot of help. Yeah. Um, you know, their back end needs some help. So all those things considered, then you look at the division – and you're like, holy smokes, man, like that is going to be a really, really tough division. That's what the Ottawa Senators are facing as they hire Pierre Maguire. Uh, that's what the Buffalo Sabres are facing. That's what the Montreal Canadiens are facing. As Tyler asked on Buy or Sell in episode 44, like you've got Boston, Tampa, Florida, all these teams, the Toronto Maple Leafs that are right there in that division Good luck trying to crack that. And so I think that's also trying to time that right about when to be competitive, the right time is perhaps the biggest challenge for Steve Eisenman moving forward. 
And uh, maybe we will see some moves. Of course, the GM meetings today, once they get together, guys that uh, have, you know, there's one, it starts conversations that maybe they weren't expecting. And you know, this will be a fascinating week uh, leading into uh, who gets signed uh, before, who's going to, of course, be exposed uh, on the list come out on a Saturday afternoon. So we look forward to that, Frank, and uh, we'll be discussing that on the eve next Friday. Have a great week. Yeah, and we'll have it all for you on dailyfaceoff.com in between that. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Cervalli and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. And let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear, and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.